Perhaps you have uh, heard of Billy Graham. Well, starting back in the 1950s, Dr. Graham began conducting hundreds of what were called evangelistic crusades around the world. Um, Most of us have... Thank you, Billy. (laughs) Most of us have seen at some point in time or probably have heard or watched on TV uh, some of those crusades. And we watched as as thousands of people would come forward to to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ when Dr. Graham would would give the altar call. And uh, what probably very few of us, though, realize is the amount of preparation that went into bringing a Billy Graham crusade to a city. Only after extensive research was a crusade even placed on the calendar, and that was most often done years in advance of, of of a crusade coming to any one particular city. And some of the preparation that took place, Dr. Graham would send representatives from his ministry uh, uh, to that particular city and they would begin to work throughout the community months and even years in advance, putting in countless hours promoting a crusade that wasn't going to come for two or three years. And they'd train thousands of People who would work altars, thousands of people who would serve as counselors to lead people to accept Jesus. And uh, throughout the community, churches were called upon and literally hundreds of prayer meetings took place before the crusade ever even started. All of this took place because they believed that without preparation, the event itself would fail. We talked last week about Advent being a time of preparation. So it's no different with Christmas. Uh, In order for the event of Christmas to be successful, there has to be some preparation. And as I said last week, I confess that there have been times, as there have been probably with some of you, that I just kind of felt like writing off Christmas for that particular year. Um... For me, Christmas time brings up a lot of old memories of loved ones whom God, for whatever reason, chose the Christmas season to be the time when he took them home to be with him. And so every Christmas season, I'm reminded of that. And uh, But there's also been times when I get so sick and tired of hearing about the commercialization of Christmas. Uh, I tend to be kind of the type of Christ follower who believes that we ought to celebrate Jesus coming 365 days a year rather than just setting aside one, right? And so, as I already said, there have been those times, though, when when some of those feelings of just writing off Christmas exist, but I've decided that this year I'm not ready yet to give up on Christmas. And I'm not ready to give up on it because we are creatures that are bound by time and space, and so we need uh, real time and space moments in our lives that remind us of the great events upon which our faith is based. And in that statement, we find the true meaning of Christmas. Jesus coming to save us. The kids read that 
His name was Emmanuel. God sent his son to be with us is the meaning of the name. And as I shared with our life support group during the Sunday school hour last week, I believe that if our Christmas is to be a spiritually successful Christmas, we're going to have to fight for it. And the way that we do that is through this idea of preparation. And it's that idea of preparation that I'm basing all four of these messages uh, for Advent upon. Um, that's, that, that's why we talk about Advent. We start at four weeks prior to Christmas. It's all about preparation. It's, and sometimes we forget that before God sent His Son into the world for us, He saw to it that the way was prepared... For his son to arrive. Now, you may have heard this before, but when Jesus arrived on the scene, he arrived after 400 years of silence from God to his people. 400 years of what I like to think of rather than being silent was 400 years of preparation for God to send his son. He arrived only after very Specific people were visited by an angel named Gabriel. Again, preparation. God even sought to prepare the way for his son by sending a man named John to call people to repentance. Another example of preparation. I believe that we serve a God of preparation. And this morning I want us to focus on a gospel writer who focuses more than any other New Testament writer on this idea of preparation, and his name is Dr. Luke. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter number 1, I'm going to read the entirety of our text this morning so I don't have to keep coming back to it uh, more than one time. So we'll just read uh, this morning through verse number 25, beginning at verse number 1. Luke says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he, speaking of Zechariah, was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. 
There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept making signs to them and remained speechless. And when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Heavenly Father, add your blessing to your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, when I started to prepare this message, I began to wonder about why Luke's focus is on preparation more than any other writer. And it occurred to me that it's perhaps because he was a physician. Uh, we all know the amount of preparation that it takes to become a doctor. And Luke tells us the purpose of uh, his, his uh, focus in the beginning verses of this Luke chapter number 1. His purpose is that there is a man named Theophilus who needs to know the exact truth about the things that he's been taught, specifically the truth about Jesus Christ and his coming to earth. Now, you need to understand some things in order to have a proper context of the importance of these words. Theophilus was a Roman, a Gentile, who had never, uh, who had become a Christian, excuse me, and Dr. Luke wants him to get the straight scoop. Now, again, Dr. Luke is also a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile who's never seen Jesus. His is the last of the Gospels to be written. And so all of the information that Dr. Luke is giving to us has come as a result of a lot of study, a lot of preparation before he writes his book because he wants to get the story right as it's been handed down from those who have told it to him. So he investigates everything very thoroughly, he lays it all out in logical order, and he gives to us what I like to think of as being a two-volume work. The first is the Gospel of Luke, from which we are reading, and the second is the book of Acts. Dr. Luke is the author of the book of Acts that talks to us about the early church, you know, in a day uh, and age of best-selling books on what are purported to be 
the lost gospels, those books that were not put in our Bibles. You hear things and watch movies like The Da Vinci Code. You hear reports about the lost gospel of Judah. Uh, of Not Judah, but uh, of, uh, what's his name? Judas. <laughs> Other purported lost gospels that were not included. And, and all of that makes me think, you know, I'm really glad that there was someone who was well-educated, a very thorough researcher, who did his homework before giving us this gospel. Because if you read the 24 chapters of the book of Luke, you will find a very clear uh, timeline of not only Jesus' birth, but his ministry and, of course, his saving work of Calvary. So in keeping with his purpose, Dr. Luke carefully chronicles what happened before Christ was born because he wants to talk to us about how God prepared the world for his son to come to us. So let me start by asking this question. Are you prepared for Christmas? Now by that I don't mean, do you have your tree up? I don't mean, have you done all your shopping? I mean, are you really, really prepared for Christmas? Are you prepared to celebrate the arrival of God's gift to our world? Perhaps you might be wondering how that's done. How do you really prepare? Well, I believe here in chapter number one, Luke helps us. And he helps us by telling us the story of an old Jewish priest and his wife, two chosen people whose names are Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were badly in need of a blessing. We see here that Zechariah was a priest and Elizabeth herself was a descendant of priests coming from the lineage of Aaron, who, if you remember back in the Old Testament, was Moses' brother. And Aaron was the first of the priests that God had chosen. And from his lineage came the remainder of the Levitical priests throughout the Old Testament. Um, Now, it's not unusual for... Not only Zechariah to be a priest or his wife to be from the lineage of priests. Uh, The priesthood in Israel was divided up into 24 divisions in those days. And there were about 18,000 priests throughout the nation of Israel. Most of them were farmers. They worked small farms and were poor. But given the time and given the fact that God had not spoken through a prophet to his people... For more than 400 years, this was kind of an unusual couple. Luke says that they were righteous in God's sight. They observed all the commandments of the Lord. Uh, This didn't mean that they were sinless by any means, but unlike many priests of that day, Zechariah and Elizabeth were examples of genuine faith in God. And it's significant because of the other thing that Luke tells us about them. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren, and her days of hoping for a child were long past. Those days, to be barren was the sign of a spiritual, thought to be a sign of a spiritual defect in the life of a woman. They didn't have fertility specialists back in those days. They simply believed that God closed a woman's womb because evidently he had some kind of grudge against that woman. Now keep in mind in that culture, women were already regarded as being second class citizens. So a barren woman in many ways was thought to be a disgraced woman. 
and had to live with that kind of disgrace everywhere that she went in society. It wasn't uncommon in those days for a husband to divorce his wife because of her being barren or or not being able to bear children. In essence, Elizabeth is forced to walk through her life with a sign hung around her neck that read sinner. Can you imagine? She was a disgrace among her peers. You think you don't want to go to church sometimes? Think about how Elizabeth must have felt. Now, Zechariah didn't have quite the same stigma to deal with as did Elizabeth, but he still lived with the deep disappointment of having no child to carry on his family name. And again, in that culture, that was thought to be a tragedy for a man. Many of us have something in our lives similar to this, something that rightly or wrongly brings some type of disgrace or disfavor upon us, and it could be something that we've done in the past could be an addiction that we battle with. It, maybe we've been in prison. Maybe we've been divorced and the stigma that comes along with that, tragically. Maybe we've been fired from a job. Maybe we've gotten arrested. Maybe we've been abandoned by our spouse. Any one of those things can make us feel as if there's a sign hanging from our neck for all to see that makes us feel like we're a disgrace. Maybe you're like Zechariah. You've been ambushed by some kind of tragedy, some kind of disappointment in life that you can never have expected. And maybe like this couple, you've been unable to have children. You wonder if you'll ever be able to really enjoy life. I know that there are some in our, first, in our church family who have experienced unspeakable tragedy over the past year. And they've been trying to, they've been left to try to pick up the pieces of, of life and go on. If you're like me, you've figured out by now that life sometimes does that to us. And it's not easy. And the tragic part is that it even happens to good people, people who are trusting in the Lord, people who trust in His ways. None of us are exempt from disappointments and tragedies. But at least for Zechariah, in that day and age, he had his work that could take his mind off of everything that he was having to deal with. And Luke tells us in verses 8 through 10 that while Zechariah was doing his priestly service in Jerusalem, he was chosen by lot to enter the holy place in the temple and to burn incense. Now, for a priest, that was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, if you think about it, 18,000 priests throughout the nation of Israel, not all of them are going to be given that opportunity. But by some choice of a lottery of some kind, Zechariah was the one chosen, not by accident, but chosen by God as part of the preparatory work that God was doing in advance of Jesus' birth. Uh, while Zechariah was inside the temple, we read that the people out would be outside in the, in the outer court and they would be there praying and, and waiting for Zechariah to come out and he would burn incense on the altar and prostrate himself before God and then customarily would just walk out. But on this occasion, on this day, Zechariah didn't come out for a long time. And if you're like me, I want to read this like Zechariah had this visit from an old friend. After all, Zechariah is a priest and the visit that he had from was from an angel. So you would think that Zechariah ought to be familiar with such divine interruptions. But that wasn't the case. When Zechariah saw the angel Gabriel, the Bible tells us that he was 
afraid. It scared him to death. Now, I don't know what that says about angels, but it sure wasn't like the ones that we put on top of our Christmas trees. Gabriel was a foreboding figure. And the sight of him literally scared Zechariah to death. But this angel has not come for purposes of harming Zechariah. He's come with some good news for Zechariah. Elizabeth is going to give birth in her old age to a son whom they were to name, interestingly enough, John. And he would bring joy not only to them, but to many others. Now, I'm kind of struck by how the angel puts this. He says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Well, what prayer? I didn't hear or read of any prayers that Zechariah had prayed at that time in the temple. Evidently, he must be talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers for a son, which, given their age, I'm sure they had stopped praying some time ago. I mean, I'm 62, and, and Brenda's 61, and I'm guessing that if she heard me to ask God to give us a son, she, she would think that I'd lost my mind. That's why she's asking God to please skip over answering this prayer of her husband's. But I have to wonder if the angel might have had in mind another prayer that I'm sure Zechariah would have also been praying. As a righteous man, Zechariah would have undoubtedly been praying, as were many other people in the nation of Israel, for Messiah to come. Verses 15 through 17, the angel says that his son's, Zechariah's son's mission and purpose would be met to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Have you ever been promised something that was beyond your wildest dreams? Something so out of the box that you could hardly believe it? I think that's what's happening with with Zechariah. Zechariah says in verse 18, after the angel gets through telling him what's coming, he says, how can I know this? (laughs) Zechariah says, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's Zechariah's way of saying, because my wife and I are so old, I'm going to need some proof, a sign that this is really going to happen. And it's at this point, I can't help myself. Zechariah asked for a sign, and I'm wanting to say, dude, you're talking to an angel. What more do you need? God has sent an angel to talk to you. Now, I don't think that I'm far off in that assertion, because it's obvious that the angel didn't like Zechariah asking for a sign. If you think seeing an angel is scary, think about what seeing a mad angel would be like. Gabriel's a little ticked off. He's a well-known angel who should have been well-known to Zechariah. So not only do you have an angel, but you now have a mad angel. And not only do you have a mad angel, you have a famous and mad angel. Angel then... In response to Zechariah's unbelief, pushes the mute button on Zechariah. He's saying to Zechariah, you want a sign? 
I'll give you a sign. You'll be able to not be able to speak until what I told you comes to pass and the promise is made good. So Zechariah has to leave the temple with nothing to say because he's been muted. Meanwhile, the people outside, they're wondering if something like a heart attack has happened to Zechariah while he's inside the sanctuary. When he finally does come out, he's unable to speak. So he starts signing. (laughs) Belinda, can you imagine trying to describe what just happened to Zechariah using sign language? (laughs) Finally, when he's all done with his priestly duties, the Bible tells us that he goes back home to where Elizabeth is. Now, again, I can't help but find verses 23 through 25 somewhat humorous. I mean, think about it. Zechariah can't speak. And he returns to his home in the hill country of Judea where Elizabeth is. And, and the first night he's back home, if he's getting ready for bed, Zechariah has that look in his eye. And Elizabeth hasn't seen that look for a long time. You know what I mean? <laughs> and she's thinking, Zechariah, you've got to be kidding me. And then he starts with the sign language again. Now imagine him trying to communicate his intentions. No, don't imagine that. I'll I'll skip that part. But just like me, the scriptures spare us all the details. It just says after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And then it says she stayed in seclusion for five months. Now, we don't know exactly why she did this. Maybe she was embarrassed being pregnant as an 80s lady. I don't know. Some scholars like to think that maybe she was afraid of losing the baby, so that's why she went into seclusion. But the point is, Luke doesn't tell us, but he does tell us that she spent time. Now, notice her response. She spent her time... Thanking and praising God for the amazing gift that's coming to her. Do you notice the difference between her response and Zechariah, the man of God's response? Think about it. Zechariah, a righteous man, he's old, he's a priest, he knows God. He knows what it means to serve God. If ever there was a real saint, it's probably Zechariah. But Zechariah evidently still had some spiritual growing to do. I mean, God sends an angel, Gabriel, to him, and God makes this marvelous promise to him. And what does Zechariah do? He doubts God. He underestimates the ability that God has To do something miraculous in his life. And the angel says it flat out. The angel says, Zechariah, you did not believe my words. Now we don't always think of doubt as being a sin. But it is. The sin is this. Underestimating God is just as serious as rebelling against God. I don't want to underestimate God, do you? God can do anything he wants to do. Now, you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And as you look at those four Gospels, what frustrated Jesus the very most? Lack of belief. How many times did Jesus look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, you have little faith. What do I need to do? I mean, he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He unclogged, stopped ears. And yet they still didn't believe. And Jesus' frustration on several occasions just kind of bubbled out. He was so frustrated at their lack of belief. And it's the exact same unbelief that Zechariah expresses to the angel Gabriel. You see, Zechariah, I believe, is a person who's known the Lord for a long time. If we were to put him in modern day language, we would say he, he goes to church. He gives his tithe. He leads a small group. He goes on mission trips. He prays before his meals. He reads the Bible every day. He does all the right things in all the right places in all the right ways. But when God comes along and challenges Zechariah to a new level of faith, he's not ready. Now, I hope that isn't a description of anyone here this morning. But as a pastor, I have to tell you that it probably is. You see, we've done all the right things in all the right ways for many, many years. But when sometimes when God comes along and says, I'm going to do something completely out of the box in your life. We think, God, I don't know if you can do that through me. And unbelief and doubt rule the day. Now, you see, friends, faith isn't just something we exercise as a means of getting our place in the family of God. Faith is something we need to exercise every day of our lives, especially after we come into the family of God. Because faith the size of a mustard seed can say to a mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it shall be done. Now, even as I say that, as I quote that, as I quote those words from Jesus himself, I guarantee you some of us are thinking, yeah, I'm not sure. Faith can say to a mountain, be moved and cast into the sea and it shall be done. Do we believe it? Or do we exercise unbelief as Zechariah did? You see, it's kind of like the cruise control on my car. I, I have a real need, just let me put it this way, to consistently use my cruise control. But my cruise control doesn't work in heavy traffic. Any of you ever tried to use your cruise control on a freeway? Don't even try it. It's kind of like Zechariah is on spiritual cruise control when it comes to his religious duties. I think Zechariah is probably like me. After 27 years now of being a senior pastor, he could wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and do a church service. He could do it because it was familiar to him. But God chose to throw him into traffic, so to speak, and what happens? He's not ready. 
He didn't want to turn off his cruise control, so he, rather than just going along with what the angel told him was getting ready to happen, Zechariah confesses, you're going to have to show me a sign before I buy this one. On the other hand, there's Elizabeth. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, one thing that Luke does, in spite of the culture in which he lived, he highlights the faithfulness of women throughout his gospel. And Elizabeth's response to this gift is set in contrast to that of her husband's response. He's forced into silence. She chooses solitude. He can't speak, but she can. And when she speaks, she speaks about God's grace and God's mercy to her of how he was in the process of taking away the shame and the disgrace that had been brought upon her by being barren. Totally different response. She'd felt shame, she'd felt disgrace, but she never let it cause her to lapse into bitterness. Her service to God was consistent even when things looked impossible. Elizabeth believed that God could do what everyone else, including Zechariah, believed to be impossible. What I'm saying to you is she's much more prepared than Zechariah was to believe and to receive God's gift. This couple reminds me that it really doesn't matter how long you've known God or how well you've obeyed God or how faithfully you've served God. There is always room for spiritual growth. Amen. We serve a God who is committed, I believe, to stretching and growing the faith of people just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, people just like you and me. Now, Zechariah wasn't prepared for Christmas because he didn't believe that God could step into his life and answer long-forgotten prayers in out-of-the-box ways. And I believe that if the real truth were to be known, many of us have at one time or another expressed some type of disappointment with God for not having answered our prayers. I know I have. I was disappointed with God for 14 years of my life from the ages of 14 to 28 because God didn't answer the prayers that I prayed for him to heal my grandfather in the way that I thought he should heal him. We're disappointed when God doesn't answer in the way that we want him to. Our disappointment, though, is as a result of not seeing things as God sees them. He does answer our prayers, but sometimes he answers them just not in the way we expect him to. I can remember my grandparents telling the story of not being able to have any more children. My grandmother gave birth to their first child. The child was stillborn, and they were devastated for a long period of time. But then came an opportunity to adopt my mom. My mom needed a loving family to take her in as their own. She was number three of what was to be eight children. She was the only one of the eight that was adopted out. They just couldn't afford to have a children, have another child in that day. And, and so they were looking for someone to, to adopt this baby. And, and my mom comes along and 
My grandparents were there to adopt her. And guess what? That was God's plan all along. And that plan is still reaping the rewards eternally 96 years later in my life and in the lives. Let me tell you what. Of those eight kids born into my mom's natural family, she's the only one, as far as we know, that's serving God. Many of them were given to addictions. Many of them were given to a a very bad side of life. But my mom, being adopted by my grandparents, grew up in a godly home. And man, the the long-term effects of that it's, a, it's amazing. God, God's plans are good. I, I think God kind of likes it when a good plan comes together. So just like old Zechariah, you know, we, we just do what we're supposed to do. We never really prepare for the possibility or believe that God is at work in our lives to bless us in ways that might just blow our minds. That's why it's important to be prepared. Do you believe that God's able to step into your life and bring joy and blessing where there has perhaps been great disgrace and disappointment? I believe it. That's what the coming of Christ at Christmas really means for each one of us. What Elizabeth says in that last verse that we read in verse number 25 is true of each of us because God sent his son. He looked with favor upon us to take away our disgrace among men. What was our disgrace? We'd fallen away from God. We'd fallen into sin. Sin was a hopeless situation that we couldn't hope to solve on our own. So God sent His Son Jesus out of love for us and our condition. While we were yet sinners, God sent His Son to bring us hope. To bring us hope of being reconciled to God. Now we also may believe that God could do something like that for someone else. But not for us. We think you know sometimes oh you don't know what I've done. Or you don't know what I've gone through. You you don't know what how hopeless my situation is. I may not but God does. And God can bring hope to that. Some of us become so cynical and jaded by life that we no longer believe that God is capable of bringing blessing to us in our lives. We're stuck in our unbelief. We're not ready for the gift that God has for us. But God has some interesting ways of getting his message across to us. Close with a story that I heard years ago from Dr. James Dobson story of an elderly woman whose name was Stella Thornhope. Mrs. Thornhope was struggling with the idea of spending her first Christmas alone after her husband's passing from cancer. And it was several days before Christmas and she was snowed in by a brutal weather system that had come through and she felt so alone, so much so that she decided she wasn't going to decorate in any way for Christmas that year. Well, late that in the afternoon of that same day, her doorbell rang and there was a delivery boy with a box. He said, Mrs. Thornhope, and she nodded yes. He said, would you sign here? And she invited him to step inside and she closed the door behind him to get out of the cold. 
She signed the paper and she asked him what's in the box. Well, the young man laughed and opened up the flap and inside was a little puppy, a golden Labrador retriever. The delivery boy picked up the squirming pup and he explained, this is for you, ma'am. He's six weeks old and he's also completely housebroken. The young puppy began to wiggle in happiness at being released from the captivity of the box. And Mrs. Thornhope asked, who sent this? And the young man set the animal down, handed her an envelope, and said, it's all explained here in this envelope, ma'am. The dog was bought in September while its mother was still pregnant, and it was meant to be a Christmas gift for you. The young man then handed her a book, How to Care for Your Labrador Retriever, that came with the package. And in desperation, she again asked him, who sent me this puppy? And as the young man turned to leave, he said, Your husband, ma'am. Merry Christmas. She opened up the letter from her husband. He'd written it more than three weeks before he died and left it with the kennel owners to be delivered with the puppy as his very last Christmas gift to her. The letter was full of love and encouragement and admonishments to be strong. And he was... He, was, he vowed to her in the letter that he was waiting for the day when she would be able to join him again. But he had sent her this young animal to keep her company until that day arrived. She wiped away the tears, put the letter down, and then remembering the puppy at her feet, she picked up that golden furry ball and held it to her neck. And she looked out the window at the lights that outlined the neighbor's house across the street. And she heard from the radio that was playing in the kitchen the strains of joy to the world. The Lord has come. And suddenly Mrs. Thornhope felt the most amazing sensation of peace wash over her. Her heart felt joy and wonder greater than the grief and the loneliness that she had experienced earlier. She said to the dog, little fella, it's just you and me this year. But you know what? There's a box down in the basement, and I bet you'd like it. It's got a little Christmas tree inside of it and some decorations and some lights that are going to impress you. And there's a manger scene down there. Let's go get them. God has a way of sending messages to us in the most amazing ways. Today, I want you to know that God wants to bring to you hope. Hope to remind you that life is stronger than death. Light is more powerful than darkness. And God is more powerful than the enemy that wants to destroy you. You see, good's going to overcome evil. Joy is stronger than disappointment. Love overpowers grief. Overpowers sorrow, overpowers sadness, overpowers loneliness, overpowers bitterness. I could go on and on. But let me just close by saying God is our source of love. And on this second Sunday of Advent, he wants us to know that he sent us a gift wrapped in love that would give us hope. Musicians, would you come please? You know, when you, when you think about God sending His Son as a gift, you just can't help but think of 
that most famous of all the verses, John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a gift. We no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear standing before God because His incredible gift has made it possible for us to stand before God forgiven and made fully whole. God sent to us His priceless possession as a gift. Jesus. I... I, 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 I just I just want to say this. Can you imagine a parent sending a child to a world that was not going to accept him? That was going to punish him and crucify him the worst of all possible deaths and and that this parent was going to have to to just sit and watch what the world did to his child. Boy, that takes the entire message of Christmas and, and takes it to a different level. God sending us his son knowing that all of that was going to take place. So let me ask you again. Are we able to believe that God is acting for us in ways that we could have never acknowledged in order to take away every disappointment of our lives? Do you believe that this morning? Lord Jesus, I, I, I look at this congregation this morning and I see looks on specific faces. Those who have experienced tragedy and disappointment in recent months. And I see the heaviness. I see the burden that they are bearing as we enter into a Christmas season. And I know that makes the season all that much more difficult, God, but I believe that you want to say something very specifically to those specific people today. And it's this. Out of your grief, out of your sorrow, out of your depression, out of your sadness. If you prepare properly to celebrate the Christmas season this year. By recognizing the hope. That comes to you because Jesus came to us at Christmas a long time ago. It will encourage you and it will lift your spirits to believe that those loved ones whom you have tragically lost, you'll be able to see them again. You didn't have that hope before Jesus came, but now you do. And let that lift your spirits. 
Let that give you a reason to think about something else this Christmas season other than your loss or your disappointment or the disgrace that you feel because of what you've done in times past. God brings us hope. We may think that's a tall order, God, because you, you just don't understand the depths that I'm feeling. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He's a parent, too. So, dear Jesus, in this moment, I pray that you would just take every person who's experiencing disappointment, every person who feels like they've disgraced themselves and their families, every person who's experienced loss and is feeling sorrow, I just pray, dear God, that you would wrap arms of love around them today. Let them know how very much you love and care for them. And do it in a way, God, that they've never experienced before. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? This is going to be a very different invitation that I have for you this morning. But I just feel like God is speaking this into my spirit. You know, when I pray things like, Jesus, wrap your arms of love around people who need to, to experience your love in a new and special way. It's an easy thing to pray, but sometimes, you've heard me describe it this way before, sometimes we need Jesus with skin on. We just need somebody to be the hands and the heart of Jesus and take us in their arms and let us know it's going to be okay. If that's you this morning and you need to experience the love of Jesus in a tangible way, I want you to just raise your hand and look around the room. Look around the room. See the hands that are lifted. Look around, friends. And if you see an upraised hand, I want several of you to go to those people and tangibly be the hands and arms of Jesus and wrap arms around them. Would you do that as we sing this morning? You give life. You give